Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, anxiety, resilience. I am talking about PDA still part two today, um, and we're looking specifically at treatment. Now, um, make sure you go back to last week's episode when I talk about PDA, pathological avoidance disorder. Um, I really see it as anxiety and just really needing to control our environment. All of us need to control our environment when we're feeling anxious, but this is sort of an excessive need and we're seeing it specifically with everyday demands. So to learn more about PDA, if you missed last week's episode, make sure you go and check that out. When we look at the treatment piece, as with anyone, we need to remember that there's no one single intervention that's going to be effective for absolutely everyone. We can't take a cookie cutter approach. We really need to make sure that we're tailoring whatever it is that we're doing to the specific child's needs within this context, within this family at this point in their life. That's going to be really important. And so we usually do include a combination of different interventions. We want to make sure we're maintaining flexibility as we go, because oftentimes with a lot of our kiddos, what works one day isn't necessarily going to work tomorrow. So we want to make sure we've got flexibility and that we're really patient with this. And especially with these kiddos, we see a lot of changes um, in their experiences, in their symptoms and how they experience their symptoms as time goes on. And that's true for everyone. We want to make sure we're flexible, but especially with these kiddos too. Now we got to think about some of the typical approaches that we'd use for other kids or even specifically for autism might not actually be the things that we need to be doing with our PDA kiddos. These kid kids tend to do better with novelty, better with spontaneity and that unpredictability in their day. Um, more than the structure and the routine that we often try to set up for them. So we really want to make sure we're finding a balance. We don't want to mess up everything, but that can actually be helpful when we're getting out of some of that structured routines for these kiddos. Now, when we're looking at behavioral approaches, we want to use um, things that are actually going to be effective. A lot of things like positive reinforcement to teach new skills that might not be very effective for our PDA kiddos and it can actually make it worse for them. So we really got to think about what's going to be effective because typically we're like, okay, we're going to change a new behavior. We want to get buy-in when we're working with anxiety. And so we want to make sure we've got that reinforcement. But like I said, it might not work for these kiddos because they might find that the demands associated with that approach. So whether it's with structure and routine or with the praise and rewards, it just becomes too overwhelming and it's not very effective in that in that regard, right? Just because now I have to work for that reward, it's just all more overwhelming for them. Um, I actually have a family that I'm working with, with a girl that's rewarded for going to school for five days in a row. And I'm trying to convince them don't do anything in a row because in a row gets to be too much, right? There's so much pressure to do anything in a row. Even myself, I, I, I do headspace meditation every morning. I do a little meditation and I don't do great on the weekends. I have a fantastic routine during the week, you know, Monday through Friday, I get up, I do my workout. I do a little stretch. I do my meditation and then take for the dogs for the walk on the weekend. It kind of goes out the window, but I've been meditating every day and I'm trying to get as many in a row. And this past weekend, I forgot one day. My daughter's been borrowing my phone to do paintings and she borrowed it in the time that I would do my meditation. And so now I'm out of routine and I missed doing it. So I was up to like 21 days or something, which for me is good because I always miss the weekend. And so I had kept it going and then it was just such a disappointment. And, and so then the pressure of having to do it in a row, I mean, that was just such a small, tiny little thing for me, but the pressure to do it in a row when you're not already successful with it can be really problematic. I say in a row is fantastic. Don't break the chain, just like Jerry Seinfeld, right? When we're trying to create new habits, but when there's so much anxiety around this for these kids, it's not very helpful. It's just the demand of needing to be successful to get that reward. It just becomes too much for them, right? So that's why we really got to think about the, the approaches that we're using, because if they do fail, not only 
is it a fail in their arm, our eyes? They're not successful with whatever it is that they were tasked to do, but now they're also missing out on the reinforcement. So it's a double whammy, right? And it's just going to create more anxiety and more overwhelm for them. Even praising our kids, even encouraging our kids can be really overwhelming for them because now they've got a lot to live up to. So that's something to think about. Now, if we don't address the anxiety, the the behavior to avoid the anxiety is just going to be continually getting in the way, right? It's going to be getting in the way of having a more powerful motivator to avoid complying. And usually they would rather avoid complying than any reinforcement we can offer anyways, usually, oftentimes. And so why would we add it in if it's just going to overwhelm them anyways, or if it's not even helping them buy into it at all? So we just got to see there, there might be some trial and error with this, right? Um, but I am going to get into some of the key pieces to think about. So those are some of the things, you know, we can't just jump in with our traditional approaches. Now, with anything that I talk about, the parent-teacher adult piece is always very important to address. I talk about it in all of my episodes usually, right? It's it's so important with any of the work that we do, with especially when we're working with children and for teens. Now, first, we need to ensure that they have a really good understanding understanding of what's going on for this kiddo, right? What's going to be helpful now? We want to focus on responding effectively when that anxiety shows up, when any behaviors show up, even if they're aggressive behaviors. The typical sort of parenting classes that focuses on positive behaviors, those normal behavioral strategies and reinforcement, again, they're not going to work. So they really have to have an understanding of PDA right? It's not that they're being malicious. It's not that they're being manipulative, even if it looks like, you know, the behavior is different from one second to the next to the next. They have to understand what's going on and what's going to be helpful. The relationship is always important, right? That's going to be so important, especially for these kiddos, but with all the kiddos. But these are the kiddos that I'm constantly writing about in reports um, and, and letters, right? That this um, kiddo is a relationship-based kiddo. You're not going to get anywhere with anything that you do if you don't have a solid relationship with them first. And that relationship, they have to trust you. They have to feel safe with you. It doesn't matter what strategy we put into place, how we respond. We could be responding so effectively. It doesn't matter what approach that we put in. It's never going to work in, in, with any child, really. It's not just these kiddos. It's never going to work if we don't have a good relationship with them, right? And especially true for our PDAers because they're going to be more likely to perceive your approach as negative. They're going to see you as being manipulative, right? So they're going to just automatically see that our intentions are bad, even if they're not, right? That's why the relationship is so important. And within that relationship, we're building a lot of positive interactions. We're, we're not being punitive at all. And so this is oftentimes, you know, I will talk about doing a challenge where you give no corrective feedback for a week. It's just about building sort of all of those positive interactions without any corrective feedback. We absolutely have to be calm. We have to be patient no matter what behaviors come our way. That's going to be really important because even just a little elevation can create huge, immense anxiety on their end. So we have to be calm. And if we can't, I mean, we're human too, but if we can't, we need to know when we need to step out or when we need to take team with somebody else. And that's important and important to share with kiddos. Like, oh my gosh, my amygdala is being triggered right now. I want to make sure that I'm being safe and that you feel safe with me, right? So I'm going to take a step out, but being proactive and telling them about that plan beforehand. So when you can say banana, that's my cue that I need a break, then they know exactly what's going on. That's going to be really important. Now, this is often where I find I need the most work because it's the behaviors that come with BD, the PDA that creates so much unrest in families and so much unrest in classrooms, and it affects everyone, right? It's not just the one adult and the one kiddo. It's everyone around them. And oftentimes, these kiddos, they extinguish their relationships and the people around them, right? They just you know, as parents and, and most parents have had this experience and most educators have had this experience and mental health professionals have probably had this experience too, where we're just constantly butt, butt, butting, butting heads. And there's no positive interactions that 
we don't feel the love. We don't feel the excitement. We don't feel the, the, the reward in our interactions with them anymore. So we're extinguished, right? We're exhausted. The people around these kids can be feeling really exhausted and feeling really helpless and hopeless. We've tried everything. And so oftentimes we need to go back to square one and really work on this piece. It's not a parenting fault of at all, but we really need to work on that relationship or a teacher fault. It's about just let's go back to the starting point and rebuild because something is broken there. So we don't want to keep piling on more expectations and, and the, the feeling that nothing is getting better when really we're trying to build kind of like the Jenga, right? The foundation isn't there anymore. We got to build that foundation so that when we do increase those expectations, it's solid. So again, we're first needing to make sure that adults are reframing how they think of this kiddo, right? And even our energy coming out in our interactions with them. You know, if, if you're a teacher, for example, and you're coming into the classroom and you're like, oh, please be sick, Johnny, please be sick today, right? That's not great energy. Even if you put on a happy face, Johnny, you're here. I'm happy to see you. You are already coming in with this negative energy, right? So if we're thinking of a defiant, manipulative child, we're already coming in with that negative energy, right? Maybe we're remembering this is a kid in pain. This is a kiddo experiencing extreme anxiety, like a terrified cat who will be vicious and do anything to protect itself, right? Um, and for a lot of them, if there's been a lot of, well, a lot of them have just been in that fight, flight, survival mode for a long time. They don't even know. It becomes so normalizing. They just assume this is how everybody must feel. This is how life is. But where, when they're in that survival mode for such a long time, it can be quite traumatizing. So we got to drop our negativity, any negativity in any of our interactions, which is probably good practice anyways drop any negativity in any interaction with anyone that you have. But if we can do that with these kiddos and we got to practice that radical acceptance, no matter who you are, no matter what behaviors you bring, no matter what you say, I'm here, I'm loving you, I'm accepting you, I'm creating that safety. That is huge. We really got to focus on that. Now, when we interact with these kiddos, we don't want to add unnecessary pressure, right? Because it can be considered punitive, first of all, and we can go down a big rabbit hole there anyways, but especially when we're first working on developing that relationship, okay, we're building the positive interactions at the same time, we're dropping a lot of the demands and we're following their lead just to start with. I, this is usually the biggest barrier that I have a challenge because parents are like, what? Teachers are like, well, we can't let kids run around and do whatever they want, right? But it's just to get over this first step to build that relationship. That's the goal here. The goal isn't to get them to comply and to follow through and stop being aggressive. The goal is to build that relationship. So everything we got to think about, how are we interacting? Are we standing over them with a firm look, you know, with our... Uh, arms crossed in front of us? Or are we open? Think of our tone of voice. That matters too. We want to be very relaxed in our interactions. So to be successful, we have to be really intentional. If you've got a kiddo, whether it's your kiddo and you're working with a kiddo who, who has all of these big aggressive behaviors, even just around these everyday demands, we have to be intentional. Okay. How am I going to present? How am I going to have that first interaction? How can I make it positive, right? How can I make him feel safe, her feel safe? We have to really have a solid game plan, right? Because there's lots of little things that we might say, that we might do that could really inadvertently trigger that anxiety and just put us back to ground zero. So even innocent questions, so think through your experiences with this child. We got to keep track of those things because we have really innocent, really well-intentioned questions like, hey, kiddo, how was your day-to-day? -day? That can make them feel pressured. So if you ask a kiddo, how was your day? And it can go sideways. Maybe don't ask that. Maybe they're feeling that pressure. We need to be really purposeful and sure we're not asking things directly right? Or that we're coming across as demanding. We can work towards building their tolerance. That's where we're going. I want you to hear me say, we are going to build their tolerance. We're not going to always be walking on eggshells. They're going to have to get over the fact that they're going to have to follow through with demands, 
right? Everyday demands is a part of life. But when we're working on this first, we have to have that relationship. And so that's what I'm focusing on right now is when we're working on the relationship, we are going to let go of some of those demands, right? We're going to be very careful early on, and then we're going to build from there. So we're never going to tell the kids what to do, right? So some things, even when we're working on the relationship, they still got to get to school. They still got to do their work. They still got to do what the other kids are doing, right? There's still a lot of those things, but we can be more indirect. Like, hmm, I wonder what would happen if you put your water bottle (laughs) over on the shelf with everybody, right? Or I wonder if we explored this textbook. I don't know what it is, right? But it's just more a hesitant sort of wondering. We want to model that flexibility as well. We want to give them lots of opportunities for them to control over what they can do or can't do. We don't want to overwhelm them. So maybe, you know, in the classroom, they do have to learn about the French Revolution. Okay. So, so that's not the option, but maybe there's different ways that they can learn about this. So today, bud, we're going to learn about the French Revolution. How do you want to learn about it? Well, I don't know. Well, here's some options. There's a podcast. There's a YouTube video. There's this chapter in, you know, in our textbook that we can read. Um, there's a website that you can go to. Which one do you want to, right? So we can give them those kinds of choices. Um, having declarative language is really helpful. So we're taking the demand out of the expectations. I, I do this a lot at home. But for example, we could say, oh, the dogs are ready for a walk instead of go walk the dogs, right? Or even, wow, it looks like such a beautiful day out. It looks like such a beautiful day to go walk the dogs, right? (laughs) They may or may not pick up on that, but we could make the task appealing too. We can really try to pique their interest so that they come over to us on their own accord without us needing them. Hey, come here and look at this, right? Like, oh, wow, this is so cool. We just want to pique their interest. So just looking at our language, and even if we use this language, how we position ourselves and how we look at the kiddos can still be a big deal, right? So we got to think about that. If we're still like, oh, it looks like a beautiful day, but our our tone of voice and our face is not projecting that, we're showing annoyance that they haven't walked the dogs yet, that's going to be a problem. So if we're going to be declarative, but we're staring intently at them, it's not going to be helpful, right? If we are using declarative language, but we're really saying, oh, just go and do this thing. We're not going to be very helpful. It's, it's about being able to let go, whether they pick up our cue or not, it's not a big deal. We're just going to let it roll off our backs. Right. So being beside them, you know, maybe that's going to be better. If you're feeling really stressed, maybe don't look at them, maybe just sitting next to them. Oh, wow. What a beautiful day out. Right. I'm just not giving that intensive eye gaze, you know, just thinking about that, that can be really helpful. Um, So like I said, choices are obvious to avoid those direct demands. Um, I often ask my kids, hey, what's your plan for the dog walking today, right? What's the best time? What what were you thinking? Those kinds of things can be really helpful. Um, We can add humor, make things fun, make things engaging, gamify things, incorporating their interests into things, Uh, role-playing. These kiddos love role-playing. So how would we get this task done if we were Super Mario characters? Hmm. I wonder how we can organize, you know, put the towels away like Tetris. I don't know, whatever that kind of thing is. So just looking at that role playing. Um, When we use approaches, we really have to let go of the outcomes. Like I said, we just got to let it roll off our back. It's, I don't care. It's no big deal to me. It's up to you, you know, about dog walking or not, even though inside you're like, just walk the stupid dog. But we really have to let go of our outcomes because we want to plant the seeds for them to follow through, but we can never expect them to follow through. That's really important. Again, I find the biggest hurdle that I get across with the parents and and any adults, right? Because they get caught up in the whole expectation thing. I did it. I was nice. I used declarative language and they still didn't do it. So then I yelled at them and then it was a big meltdown. Well, that's just going to be triggering, right? We're, We're not going into that place. We don't want to get caught up in the expectation of we're changing how we're responding and changing our expectations too. 
So at the end of the day, what I'm saying is we have to make sure that whatever adult is working with this kid, whether it's parents or educators or other professionals, you have to have a strong relationship. Kids need to feel safe. We're not initially placing obvious demands on the kiddos to start with, right? We're absolutely going to increase our expectations. If you know me, I talk a lot about we're not accommodating, but we got to think about who we're talking about. That's a general anxiety. When I'm talking about our PDA kiddos, that's not the best approach, right? Um, so, so we are going to increase our expectations, but if we want to start turning things around, we really need to make sure that we're proactive. We're setting everybody up for success, including ourselves as the adults. So having a solid understanding of what's going on for their kiddo, what's going on with their needs, what is it that they need? How, how are we going to tailor our response and our approach to meet their unique needs? We got to be proactive, right? Through and through, that's going to be really important. We're going to have lots of opportunities for collaboration, for choice, for control. We're going to be giving them a lot of that. So that's the first piece is looking at the adults and making sure that they are set up to be successful and that they are able to follow through when the big aggressive PDA sort of behaviors show up. We need to make sure they are ready first. We're not going to jump in with the kiddo. We're always starting there. Once we're ready to focus more on the kiddo, obviously we have to address the anxiety piece. It's very similar to everything that I I've talked about in the past and especially in the autism series the past couple of weeks. So make sure you go back and check with that um, because a lot of those strategies that I talk about will be very similar. Um, here, we do add a few more behavioral components to it for our kiddos. So yes, there are accommodations which I normally don't have for neurotypically developing kiddos, right? And I'll be talking about that in, in, in a second. Um, but there are a few similar things. So as with any anxiety, we're not trying to get rid of it. We're not focusing on elimination strategies. We're getting rid of those elimination strategies, right? So it's about building the tolerance to discomfort that comes with demands, tolerating the discomfort of the expectation that I need to do X, Y, and Z today and the ability to do X, Y, and Z. Even if I'm feeling anxious, even if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I can handle it. I can follow through. So that's going to be where we want to get to, right? Same sort of thing. Not getting rid of the anxiety, but being able to tolerate it. And, you know, oftentimes it does sort of manage itself and, and, and does calm down, but we don't want to have that expectation. Now, when we look at the accommodations, we want kiddos to experience success. So we don't, oh, barking, apologies. I think my dog stopped now. Okay. So we do want to make sure we're breaking things down into smaller manageable steps. That's going to be important. So if we're giving them a big task, getting ready in the morning, we're going to break those down. Get dressed. We're going to break it down. Okay. Um, e even into get your clothes, right? First, start with your dresser clothes, then get your closet clothes, right? Or whatever that is. We're going to make it more manageable. We're going to be providing lots of choices, lots of options. Now, the reinforcement piece to help them engage in tasks it, it it's it's just such a sticky tricky sort of slope if they're willing to but we just want to make sure that we're not adding any additional pieces i would just make it more about engagement right and making it more about their own autonomy and, and ability to follow through with those tasks because they want to, right? It's sort of their idea and their initiative. That's more important than anything. Now we're not accommodating the anxiety. And that's really important when I talk about accommodations, it's not about in the anxiety that we're accommodating. We're doing good executive functioning practices here. We're supporting any deficits that they might have. And so if they're just overwhelmed with planning and prioritizing and getting started on things, that's what it is that we're accommodating. And so I think that's really important for us to think about. So we're not reassuring them. We're not babying them. We're not doing things for them. But, but we're supporting those things that are already tricky for them, okay? Um, and, and especially with our autistic kiddos where there's executive functioning deficits or even ADHD kiddos, there's executive functioning deficits. That's what we're accommodating for, not the anxiety. 
But we do want to make sure, you know, that we always have an eye towards expanding our expectations. So for right now, I'm talking about reducing our demands, using declarative language and all of those kinds of things to build the relationship and to build successes. So successes for the adults, but also for the kids. And that's what we're focusing on, right, is focusing on success. So we might have to structure the environment, structure situations, structure the expectations in such a way that kiddos aren't feeling like they're going to be overwhelmed. Okay. So I think that that's really important, focusing on relationship and how can we get them into a success loop where they are feeling a little bit more confident and competent and able to manage things. That's what the foundations that we're building on. Now, obviously, we can't take all demands away. And I wouldn't want to take all demands anyway, right? So I think that that's really important to think about. We're not just letting them run wild. They can't just run into the street naked, right? Um, and so it's not reducing all of our demands, but it's the perception of demands. We want them to feel like they have control. That's really important. But I know that this can be tricky and I do get some pushback. We need to stay on our toes because things can change from moment to moment, right? So we need to always make sure we're adjusting our approach. We want to make sure we've got a full toolbox then of strategies so that we can adjust what we're doing, our approach, but adjusting our demands as well. We want to make sure our kiddos are with that within that optimal zone of tolerance, and so we, we often talk about that optimal zone, right? Not too easy, not too hard. We know for a lot of our kiddos, even our neurotypical kiddos, we get bigger meltdowns at the end of the day than at the beginning of the day because their executive functioning battery, their emotion regulation battery, they're drained. They've just been at school all day. So we know that they don't have as much to give to keep their cool, right? So if sibling comes along and says something annoying, they might lose their mind way more easily after school than first thing in the morning. It's because their battery is drained. So we got to recognize how they're doing. Maybe we can give a little bit more of, you know, a demand or expectation in the morning, but at the end of the day, we got to alter our approach, right? If we know they had a double gym period or they had a big overwhelming day at, a, at an outing, maybe there are things we could normally do on a typical day in terms of asking them to help out with something, but we know today is not going to be that day. We're going to ease up a little bit, right? So this is where I talk about modeling that flexibility, right? We got to model it. We got to be aware of what's going on for them. When they're doing great, they can work on their tolerance to, to demands. When they're doing great, they can totally take, hey, go put on your socks. Okay, cool. I'm going to go put on my socks, right? I'm going to go do that when they're doing great. And so we just got to make sure we can't expect them because they were great yesterday morning that they're going to be great and able to handle it today. So that's where it can get tricky, right? Just being flexible and knowing that balance. Um, but at, at least initially, that's why I say maybe taking that challenge, not putting any corrective feedback on just so that we can build that foundation and get them into a success loop. Now, whenever they're working on things, they need a lot of recovery breaks to make sure they reset their battery of tolerance. Even just having to make a decision can be so overwhelming for a lot of these kiddos and that working memory just drains their battery completely. So if we are going to be working on anything, we got to make sure they have a huge brain reset. That's so important for a neurodivergent kiddo. And, and that's important for the family too, on that note, especially if we're just on the edge of waiting for the next meltdown, it's probably good for everybody to have a brain reset break. During these breaks, though, we got to make sure there's no demands at all, or at least minimal demands. They need a whole sort of whole system reset. That's going to be really important. We also want to address the anxiety. So learning that I can handle the situation, I can handle the demands in the situation. So once we have those foundational pieces, we are going to start increasing our demands and expectations so that they can learn, I can get through it. I can manage it. I can figure it out. I can finish whatever it was that was asked of me. And I can tolerate the overwhelm or the stress that comes up from that demand. I can cope with it. So that exposure piece is absolutely still critical here as with any anxiety intervention that I talk about. And so we're focusing on developing the sort of self-management system. Now, when we look at exposure, 
we might have to do some modifications because there are unique features of PDA and really in autism, which I've already discussed, you know, before in my two part series with the autism and anxiety, these kiddos are really experiencing high, high, high levels of anxiety. And, and they have that really high intolerance to uncertainty that I've talked about. So an absolute need to control their environment, which we really need to take into consideration for these kiddos, because this is where the exposure can get really tricky. Um, they're definitely going to have a hard time facing something, right? They're, they're going to definitely be trying to avoid it. And if they perceive it as an overwhelming demand or that we are trying to control them, it's just going to make be really, really high, high, high. So they're just going to get into more avoidance and more behaviors. So I always talk about collaboration and all the work that I do, but this is where collaboration is absolutely a hundred percent critical. There is no option when you're working with these kiddos. I collaborate with all the kiddos that I do when I do exposures. So that's really important anyway, no matter what, really, I would never force anyone to do anything that they don't want to do. So that's really true for anyone I work with, with anxiety. We can't control kids anyway. I'm always talking about that. So that's why I always focus on the adult's behavior. That's so critical. We don't have to do the things that anxiety wants us to do. But definitely with these kiddos, we want to make sure we are absolutely collaborative. We are absolutely flexible. We are absolutely like no skin off my back, right? They have to be actively involved in every step of the process. So identifying that fight flight, the, the, the triggers, what they hate, you know, we would look at the naggingness and it's not just the request. Maybe there's a nagging voice or a yelly voice. <laughs> Maybe it's a timing. Maybe there's a sibling watching over, right? Like, let's get in. We want to dig deep and find the rich detail about what's going on for them, about looking what's overwhelming, what, what gets in the way. And then we're going to develop a plan together for what that's going to look like for exposure. Not only what they're going to do, but the pace of what we're going to do, how long we're going to do for it, how often are we going to have breaks? Every single piece, every single detail they need to be involved in, right? And so, you, you know, and even writing it down and having them sign so that they can see, oh yeah, this was the plan. And, and let's have a date that we're going to check in because we don't want to throw it all away. No, no, no. I don't like the plan. Once we go and put it, oh, you don't like it. Okay, cool. Friday. We're going to check in on Friday and we'll tweak it then. So your job is to take note of everything that you like and don't like about this plan. And we're going to come back on Friday. That's what we signed here to retweak it. So we're going to do it for the next three days or whatever it is. So we just want to make sure, again, we're, we're addressing all those areas and we want to make sure it's actually tricky for them. That's the one disclaimer that I'm always giving, right? If we're always building a really easy plan that's like, like not even a one on how hard of it, a scale is it going to be? If they're never going to have a problem with it, we're not going to make any progress because if it's easy, we're not changing the brain. We're not pushing them. We're not building their tolerance, right? Nothing is going to change. So yes, we reduce those expectations, but when we start doing exposure, this is where we start increasing those expectations so that they can work on tolerating it and managing it. Okay. So where do we target? Well, it all depends on the kiddo's preferences. Where are they experiencing specific anxiety, right? So even though I always talk about the process, sometimes we have to zoom in on a specific situation. So maybe it's a social situation. Maybe it's managing other people's expectations or their perceptions of other people's expectations. Maybe we're focusing on situations where the kiddos need to learn to be flexible with. Being able to cope with uncertainty. I don't know how something's going to turn out. And so I'm going to go in and see what happens, right? So I think that that's really important, but I can't emphasize enough when we look at the core of PDA, it's, it's, it's not about the situation right? It's not about the task. It's about the demands placed on them. And I stressed that a lot last time and I'm stressing it again now. So we're working on these things that could be making it worse. We're promoting their emotion regulation. We're promoting their resilience, right? All of those things, but it's all around the demand and the expectations. So we got to make sure we're maintaining that collaborative stance, even in the language we're using and how we talk about it, like I talked before. 
So once we identify what area we're going to target, we want to brainstorm. We're going to brainstorm all of the ideas with the kiddo, everything possible that the child could target, right? Um, And we're not going to judge anything. Even if they say something absolutely ridiculous, we're going to write it down, right? And then we, we can throw out ridiculous things as well. Once we have our list and nobody can think of any more, we can cross off the ones that aren't doable. And we want the kiddo, whether it's child or teen or even an adult, where do they want to start? We just got to make sure there's some discomfort though, right? Because otherwise we're not going to build skills. We're not going to rewire the brain. So where do they want to start? Whatever we do, we need to ensure that we're not overwhelming them. So that optimal sort of zone of tolerance, we don't want to make it so overwhelming that it's just going to be a big fail, but we also want to make sure that learning is happening. So it's not too easy, right? They need to build their confidence and build their capacity to cope and their confidence in their ability to to cope. That's going to be really important. And, And they need to be able to see that I can still be in control of my responses. Even if I don't like the demand that was asked of me, I can still be in control. Even if the world is throwing a curveball, even if it was something totally left field that I wasn't expecting at all. So giving choices, giving the final decisions here on what we're going to work on. We're not pushing. We're not rushing. We're not creating new demands about this process. That's definitely important because if they see is this process is just a coercion activity, they're never going to be involved in any process that we want. So that's going to be really important to think about. So when we do the exposure, we are ultimately getting them to choose what they're going to be working on, but we want them to start shifting their thinking patterns in, in the way that I can handle it, right? I can handle the demand that someone puts on me. And it's not through talking. It's not through reframing their thinking. It's through experience by going into the exposure. That's why we do it. So we're increasing their tolerance to the overwhelming stimuli, that demand that's put on them. That tolerance, that shifting beliefs comes through experience. So we don't have to sit down and talk about it and reframe it or any of that work. It's way easier when we go right into the exposure. And that's true really with any anxiety. I talk about reframing and problem solving and all of those types of things, but the reframing really comes from exposure. That's where the entrenchment of new pathways, new resilient pathways, the new rewiring of our brain comes through that experience. That's where they learn it. And especially for these kiddos who can have such unhelpful sort of rigid inflexible thinking patterns. They have a lot of difficulty with self-reflection and with self sort of insight a lot of the time. And so that's why we have to do exposure. That's a key component of our intervention because they can't just sit and talk and reflect and, you know, have all that insight. It's really hard. So I still want to externalize those unhelpful committee members who ring that fight flight alarm, who like to make them freak out and get in trouble and push back. So we still want to do all of those pieces right? Understanding that we've got sort of these anxious thoughts that are making us feel gross, that are making us behave, right? So all of those things, we can still talk about it, those things that are contributing to the experiences, but that's part of the learning, right? And and getting them to the exposure. And so that's what's going to be really important. Now, for some kiddos, it really depends on their cognitive capacity, how well they can communicate. So if they don't have a lot of words and and not a a lot of understanding, then maybe we will use visual aids. I like having visuals for everyone. Usually, like even with my teens and adults, having them can really help us stay grounded. It can help us keep our prefrontal cortex online, our thinking brain. That's really important for learning and problem solving, right? For all of that to happen. The visuals can help prepare them for the process, remind them what is it that we're working on? Why are we working on them? It's really helpful for the adults too to remember, oh yeah, this is my job. This is how I'm going to respond, right? Um, But the thing is, that's really important to think about for our PDA kids is they have to make sure that the visuals aren't perceived as another demand. That's where the visuals can go sideways. So we have to be really careful. So again, a great approach for a lot of kids, but not necessarily with our PDA kids. So we got to be very careful if we are going to use something like a visual aid, 
or even a contract for that matter. How are we using it so it doesn't feel like a perceived demand? Okay. Now, there's kiddos, you know, if if they don't have any verbal skills at all, they just might need to have that approach in the first place just to understand what the heck is going on. But that could all, just be another option that we talk about. Do you want to have a visual sort of step-by-step -step of what you're going to do, what I'm going to do? Like, what do you think? Um, maybe having a choice board or a bingo card where they can have some control. Just like, okay, we're going to go learn. How are you going to learn? Here's a choice board of all the different ways you can learn this material, for example, right? Because then they get to choose what they want to do. So I think that's important to think about. Now, while we're following their lead, there has to, of course, be boundaries. These are red lines. I talk a lot about red lines, our non-negotiables. Now, we can't have too many. Everything can't be a red line. I know parents have such a hard time of this. This is another reason why I have the challenge. You know, don't give corrective feedback for a week because then parents can see, on the one hand, how much corrective feedback they're giving and how can we, you know, um, add more positive interactions. But on the other hand, they can start seeing, oh my gosh, every other word out of my mouth is a corrective feedback. Do I really need to have that as a non-negotiable? And then they can start prioritizing. So I kind of like that activity. Um, but it, it, so it's important for parents to know not everything can be a non-negotiable. They're going to have to prioritize their goals. Okay, and, and we're only going to start making sure we create that boundary by focusing only on those non-negotiables. And same thing in schools. What are those non-negotiables? You running out of the school, that's a boundary. I don't care. I am getting you back inside, even if that's going to create a meltdown, right? That is a boundary you are not allowed to cross and I'm going to follow through with. So that's an example, right, of, of the non-negotiable. I'm not just going to follow your lead and hop in my car and drive around the neighborhood as you're running away. No, we're not going to do that. We have to create boundaries. So that's important. We, we want to talk about these priorities, if possible, together so we can come to agreement. Okay, bud, this is the absolute no red line. Okay, you are, if you get up and leave the classroom, we are going to grab you if you go by any doors. Maybe you can get up to go to the bathroom, but we're going to have somebody monitoring you, right? Or whatever that is. So just so that they know this is a, a boundary you cannot cross. Everyone's red lines are different. So it's going to vary from family to family, from school to school, from teacher to teacher or professional to professional. So you have to make sure you are creating those very firm boundaries, no matter what. This is how I'm going to respond if this happens, if this boundary is crossed. Now, I know I get a lot of questions about my red lines. It's one of the biggest questions I get from a lot of families. And it's tricky because I have really high tolerance of things that other parents probably lose their minds over, right? So if kids are throwing ball in the house and it's crashing into pictures and stuff, parents are like, you're breaking things. I, I, for me, don't care. I don't really, it's just stuff. I don't actually even have anything that's breakable. If you look at my main living room area, I've got a poster of Snape from Harry Potter. That's the only picture that's up. We have no family pictures or anything breakable. Um, actually, the only, that's not true. The only breakable things that we have on display are one is a Lego Ghostbusters thing. And the other one is a Lego little mini Hogwarts. So, you know, if they're, they want to throw a ball, cool. The only thing they're going to break is their own stuff, right? So I don't really care if they're throwing stuff around the house because I don't have anything that's broken. Um, so, you know, that might be a different red line for me. And that's why I don't like sharing my red lines. Um, you know, I do get annoyed if they don't do their chores, but I'm not punishing about it. I'm like, okay, what's your plan? Okay, cool. Okay, I'm going to go downstairs and watch Malcolm in the Middle. So I'll know you want to watch with me when your chores are done. So just let me know. And if you don't want to, totally cool. Like I get that, right? Um, or what's your plan with picking up poo today, right? So those kinds of things, that's kind of how I approach it rather than, oh my gosh, right? Um, my big red lines really would be about school. That's a non-negotiable with my kids. It never used to be, right? I, I would take them out of school all the time for mental health days. Really, they were skiing days. We used to, I would take them out of school all the time. But since COVID, both of my kids have been having a little bit more school refusal. And so with any school refusal, there are no chill and relax days, even if it's because I want to go skiing. It's a school day. If it's a school day, it's a school day and you're going to school. So I don't have any other expectations around them going to school though. So what I mean by that is I don't care what they look like. 
when they go to school. I don't care what they're wearing. I don't care if they stink. I don't care if they brush their hair. I do prefer if they ate some breakfast, but whatever. It's on them at the end of the day. Whatever their state leaving the house is, isn't my business. So my red line is you're going to school, but I'm not heaping on. You got to brush your teeth and you got to brush your hair and you got to look respectable and you got to make your bed and you got to going to school is the must. Everything else and how they get there, that doesn't matter. So that's just an example of what's true for me. So it's going to be important to work through that and what's important from a family perspective. And it's going to be different from family to family because some families are like, absolutely not. You have to brush your teeth. But just think about it. Do they have to brush their teeth and wash their face and have the perfect outfit and you know, have their bed made. (laughs) Like sometimes it's just focus on what the most important thing is and let the rest go. Um, one important consideration for all kiddos, but definitely our PDA kiddos, which is, is, um, really just our anxious neurodiverse kiddos is to look at the skills that they need right? It's, it's all great and fine to do exposure, but if you're lagging skills, we might be throwing them into a pit of fire. We know these kiddos have trouble with emotion regulation, right? So that's why we see these really intense sort of emotional reactions to situations. And we're, we're likely going to see that when we do exposures, right? It's not going to help if they're getting overwhelmed with anger or frustration, Um, it's just going to lead to more avoidance or resistance. So that's why the collaboration is going to be important on the one hand, but if they don't have the skills to help regulate their emotions, we're working on that first, building that emotional vocabulary, building that emotional literacy, building that emotional awareness without that awareness, it's going to be so hard. Now, oftentimes I still do exposures, but I'm building those skills. That's my focus more than them being able to follow through with the demand I'm focusing on their awareness of identifying how they're feeling and being able to cope with that before the follow through of the demand. So we just got to think about that, right? So we got to add in skill building strategies for a lot of these kiddos. Emotion regulation is pretty much important for everybody, right? For any person I've ever worked with, but definitely important here. All of those elements that I've talked about in my podcast, where I deep dive into trainings to all of my um my anxiety compass, for example, it's all applicable. Mindfulness, acceptance, all of those pieces of that compass are really important too. We got to raise that emotional awareness of knowing what's happening for me right now. It's okay. It's not dangerous. It's temporary. I I, I can still do it um, and I can manage it. All of those things are going to be really important. So building that emotional awareness and literacy and coping skills is going to be helpful. Now I've talked about mindfulness-based strategies before and just really quickly here, it's important in any anxiety work, not in the moment, right? It's more about building that awareness and building our prefrontal cortex so it can stay online. So we're, we're using them proactively. And we do that by getting curious without judging of whatever's happening right now. It's, hmm, what's going on right now? I really want to punch you in the face, right? We want to kind of get that curiosity, which comes with mindfulness. So sometimes we have to take 20 steps back to make sure we're building these skills so that when they go into these exposures or we're expecting them to do things, they have a few more skills to pull from. So we're teaching our kiddos to focus on what's happening right now. You know, when that trigger happens, mom tells you to go brush your teeth. What's happening in your body? What's that feeling that's bubbling up? How do they want to respond? How does that henchman want them to respond? We need them to notice about what's happening first so that they can raise that awareness with awareness. They can make a different choice other than being overwhelmed. They can learn to regulate their own emotions. If they can't even recognize them and understand them in the first place, we can't expect them to manage them. Um, And so the visual choices can be helpful as a reminder of choices of what they can do. But again, it's all taught proactively and collaboratively, right? So there's lots of different things that we could be doing to help them learn to be present as well. So maybe they're scanning different parts of their bodice. I'm thinking body and noticing. So thinking about different parts of their body and noticing what what is happening, right? Um, Mindful movement, mindful eating. There's a lot of things that we can do proactively. 
Um, lots of teaching interactions. We're setting up little mini exposures to set off that amygdala so that they can start learning this is what being curious looks like, right? So maybe we're not putting them in the big demand and it's not a fear hierarchy. It's just knowing what are the skills that we're working on. I'm, I'm creating curious mindfulness, right? So that's going to be helpful to increase their tolerance of whatever is sort of coming up for them in, in that moment. That's sort of the ultimate goal at the end of the day. Um, another important aspect of mindful intervention is, is the acceptance and self-compassion. A lot of these kiddos struggle with social communication. And so they keep getting so much negative feedback about their behaviors, which can really affect their self-esteem and their self-compassion, right? Most of them, they just have a lot of trouble with this and they likely have really negative sort of internalized messages about their behavior and they struggle with feelings of, of, of guilt and of shame. And so the mindfulness piece can be really helpful to help them sit with maybe shift, but sit with that attitude, um, towards themselves and their experiences. We want to, again, promote greater self-awareness, greater emotion regulation. It's sitting with it, right. Rather than getting sucked in with it and beat, beating ourselves up with it. Um, we definitely need everybody around them to be on board too, so that they're not inadvertently contributing to that guilt and the shame, all of that, right? All those little corrective feedback pieces that we do, it's just going to stress and overwhelm our kiddos. It's not very helpful. So we're looking at validating their challenges as real. They are real. And we're working together. That's really important, right? That that collaborative piece that we're working back um, through everything together. So when we look at everything that I've talked about, getting adults to respond effectively, we're validating kiddos' feelings because they're real. They are intense, right? We might not like how they're coming out, but they are real. And they're having a really hard time managing. So even if we think it's a little deal, why are you freaking out? Because I have to put your socks on or that you have to put your socks on, right? It's a big deal for them. So we need to make sure that they're feeling safe and not judged and all of those kinds of things. Kids learn best from experience from the people around them. And so it's really important that the adults are modeling self-compassion themselves, right? And treating themselves with kindness whenever they make mistakes. That's going to be really important, especially when we're addressing the shame and guilt and all of those kinds of things. We also need to change the environment. So our responses, our expectations, I've already talked about that, making sure we're setting them up for success. That's always important. And then focusing on their strengths, focusing on their interests, really highlighting the things that are going good. That's all still really important. Um, there's other specific skills that they need to work on, certainly, right, that we got to consider. Problem solving, which again is pretty much true for every kiddo that I know and especially an anxious kiddo that I've ever worked with, but definitely important for these kiddos as our social skills. Because again, a lot of these kiddos have social challenges. That mindfulness piece can really help promote their awareness with their emotions and emotion regulation, but even social awareness. So that's important, but targeted social skills can be critical too for a lot of these kiddos, because a lot of the tasks that we might need them to do probably involve social situations. And even just thinking in day-to-day -day classroom, you know, putting up your hand if you need to help or answering a question, presenting in front of the class, interacting with peers, or even just going to grandma's house for Sunday dinner, right? So considering all of those things, we, we have to look at the lagging skills here. What is going to interfere with their success if we're going into an exposure? Because we're not going to make them just go ride a bike in a busy street if they're scared of doing that, if they don't even know how to ride a bike in the first place, right? So that's the same, that's the analogy that I, I like to equate it to. So that's why we might need to add in that additional component of working on social communication, working on the social interaction skills. So it might be explicit social skills training based on what they need. Um, thinking about, is it initiating interactions, sustaining a conversation or sustaining a positive interaction, knowing how to respond to my friends appropriately. Am I being reciprocal? Am I being thoughtful and caring, right? We can target that directly. Um, I know that I've talked about it before, but I really love video modeling because that could work really great with this population. So you would have a kiddo watch a social interaction. Sometimes often I would, I would start with somebody else, somebody they don't even know. We're watching a video. How are they doing? Oh yeah, that was really good. They went up and said, Hey, my name's Charlie. What's your name? Ooh, that wasn't so good when they're like, what's up with your haircut? It's terrible, right? 
maybe not so good, they can start looking at that. We're going to chat about what was going on in the video that we saw, and we're going to practice it. Um, and, and then they can start watching their own interactions, right? And start rating. Oh, yeah, I can see that I did really good there. Oh, I probably could have said this instead. And now we're going to start integrating those skills into practice in the real world. Now, oftentimes they know the skills, they know what they're supposed to do, but they can't do it, right? Um, or they just haven't had a lot of opportunities to put them into practice in a natural setting. I see this all the time for kids who go into social skills groups, right? They aren't effective because these kids don't have the skills that they need to generalize them. And they don't have that knowledge of how do I put these into practice here at school when everybody is chaotic. I don't have the same sort of adult to kid ratio. You know, there's all sorts of different things. So we're going to be practicing those skills in lots of different contexts that they come into naturally all the time. So that can become exposure in and of itself, but we might need to supplement it with other exposures, you know, with, um, other exposures that they need to do, additional supports that they need to do. Um, they might need additional social cues, social feedback, you know, but with more success, they're going to build those experiences and they're going to learn that I can manage it, whatever that situation is. Now, with all of this, we need to remember that their heightened anxiety levels, their need for control over the environment is going to get in the way. So that collaborative approach is still really important here too, right? They are actively involved in identifying what social skills that they want to work on that they could develop. We can, our guides and we can give some feedback, but that's why I like the video modeling where they can be like, oh, I can really work on that. Even if we're like, really dude, because I think you need to work on this, but we can create that menu, right? What do you want to start working on? What's important to you? How are you going to start working on it, right? How are we going to practice it so we can boost your confidence? So we're still maintaining all of those pieces that I've already talked about in terms of in terms of that collaboration. Now, one consideration, absolutely, we need to consider sensory sensitivities. So we might need to adapt our exposures by modifying sensory environments to reduce that sensory overload, unless we're working on sensory exposures, right? Being able to tolerate different sensory stimuli. But if we are asking them to work on the social goal, meanwhile, the sensory overload is so overwhelming, right? That's not going to be helpful. So we always got to remember what is our goal? We can't expect a kiddo to follow through with something that we want them to do and overload their system. Maybe eventually we start adding those expectations, but not to start, right? So if we need to adjust the lights or we need to give them noise canceling headsets so that they can focus on getting dressed and not be overwhelmed with all of that sensory input, then that's fine, right? So we just need to think about that. Um, we can also look at behavioral activation, I will be talking about behavioral activation specifically in a few weeks. I absolutely love behavioral activation. I love the approach and it's used in so much of my work for decades. I've been using it, but this is essentially where we're incorporating uh, kiddos strengths, their interests or, or anything else that's really enjoyable and that they're motivated by into their daily routines. I actually do a lot of behavior training workshops and I talk about neutralizing activities. Um, even if we're talking about big problem, aggressive outbursts, you know, sort of behaviors, these kiddos are on, on, on the tip of expulsion from school. Like I'm talking big behavior. So I do a lot about this where I'm talking about these neutralizing activities, but this could be a key component, not just managing problem behaviors, but incorporating that into the work that we're doing here. So incorporating fun activities into their day to improve their overall mood in the first place. Right. And then we can learn to do it really sneakily, well, not sneaky, tactfully, right? Where we can actually help the brain pair an anxiety triggering situation with something positive. I'm always talking about the the pairing, right? And sibling rivalry. That's always the number one thing that I tell parents is pair the sibling with something fun. They can only access the iPad if they're with their sibling. So the brain is like, yes, I get to go hang out with my brother today. Even though they might be focused on the iPad, we are pairing the brain, right? So that behavior activation piece is particularly important for our kiddos because they have a hard time with motivation in the first place and, and engaging in things in the first place. And so this approach, we're directly increasing that engagement. As we do this with anything, we need to make sure we're identifying any barriers or obstacles that can get in the way. So obviously avoidance behaviors, that's the number one, right? And so 
we're learning the coping skills. That's really important. So it could involve the mindfulness, right? Raising that emotional awareness within that exposure. Um, but we, you know, we might need to add that behavioral component here. We just got to look at how are we going to boost that engagement? We want to be proactive. If we can induce the positive mood in the first place, I think that that's really helpful <laughs> rather than relying on that reinforcement that could set them off. Right. So I think that that's important. Um, I always include, you know, really foundational sort of lifestyle piece. We got to think, I'm not going to go into details about that, but it's just really good foundation to start on our kiddos exercise is helpful, right? We are meant to move. Sleep is really helpful. They're not going to be able to do anything. Even if you've got a great relationship, if they're sleep deprived, nutrition is important. That lifestyle piece is really important. So we're proactively working on all of that. In addition to proactively working on things like regulation skills, right? But we want to make sure um, we involve other things too, that, that can be really helpful, you know, um, so, so the lifestyle, but we can also look proactively at coping skills that can bring down the overall level. So if we're doing behavior activation to improve mood, but we can also work on things to reduce their overall arousal level. And that's where some of the relaxation sort of things I love for kids, muscle, progressive muscle relaxation, where they actually tense up and then relax their muscles and they can feel the difference between, Ooh, this is tense and Ooh, this is relaxed. So I think that those are things that we just need to focus on proactively. They're not strategies in the moment, but it just helps regulate some of the emotional pieces anyways. But with all of this, we need to have parents and teachers and anyone else in the kiddo's life working together to make the biggest progress. So once we have all the things in place, we're constantly monitoring. We want to make sure that we're making progress. We're tweaking things as needed. Now, that's so important because there's never a one size fits all approach. We are always individualizing our work, how we work with kids, what we do. And we definitely need to consider their understanding of everything, their language skills, because that can get in the way. I've already talked about that. Um, so we make sure that we're addressing their needs, but even from one child to the, not even between children, just one child from one day to the next one minute to the next things change and then moving forward. And when we move forward, it's working collaboratively with them. That's going to be so important. So I'll leave it here for today. Lots to think about. If you ever have any questions, feel free to reach out. I would love to help however I can. Um, but I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Go help those kiddos be bold and courageous. And I will see you next week. <music>